When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. In this week's podcast, we're discussing the US presidential election. What will happen when Americans head to the polls on November the 3rd? And, crucially, what might happen afterwards if the election results are in dispute? My guest is Susan Glasser of The New Yorker magazine, where she writes a weekly column on life in Trump's Washington. So will this be a regular election? Or are we looking at the deepest political crisis in modern American history? Both candidates headed to vital swing states in the final week of campaigning. Voters in states like Florida, North Carolina and Pennsylvania could decide the election. Eight days, you believe that? Eight days from now, we're going to win the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and we are going to win four more great years in the White House. It's good to be almost home. Jill's a Philly girl, but I'm a Scranton guy. But the fear that things will not be settled on November the 3rd hangs over the whole campaign. President Trump's repeatedly alleged that the vote's likely to be rigged or fraudulent. This is going to be a fraud like you've never seen. The other thing, it's nice on November 3rd, you're watching and you see who won the election. And I think we're going to do well because people are really happy with the job we've done. But you know what? We won't know. We might not know for months because these ballots are going to be all over. Those kinds of allegations seem to be laying the ground for legal challenges to the result. President Trump may hope that if he cannot win at the ballot box, he can win in the courts. And of course, there is a precedent. In 2000, the contest between George W. Bush and Al Gore was ultimately decided by a Supreme Court ruling. Seven justices of this court have agreed that there are constitutional problems with the recount ordered by the Florida Supreme Court. My guest, Susan Glasser, has a particular expertise on that disputed election. She's just co-authored a biography of James Baker, a Bush advisor who played a key role 20 years ago. What I am saying here is that Florida has voted twice. Governor Bush won the first vote. We have had a transparent and fair and orderly recount, and he has won that, and there have been no... We'll be discussing the danger that, 20 years later, another U.S. presidential election could end up in the courts. One thing that might avert that outcome is a very clear and decisive result on election night itself. And the opinion polls do currently suggest that Joe Biden, the Democratic Party challenger, is well ahead. 
So when I got Susan Glasser on the line from Washington, I started by asking her if she trusts the opinion polls. <laughs> Look, uh, you know, we all have uh, 2016 PTSD uh, here in the U.S., no question. So uh, you won't find a lot of people who are very comfortable making hard and fast predictions about what's going to happen next week. Uh, you know, a quick reminder that, in fact, the national U.S. polls four years ago were actually quite accurate in terms of the final national result. Uh, some of the state polls were more off. And of course, that proved decisive given our unique electoral college. I do think you're seeing a lot more state polling and obviously a lot more national organizations getting into the states because of that inaccuracy from four years ago. But um, I don't think anybody is going to believe this until it's done, not just on election night, but certified by the uh, electors and certified by Congress and uh, January 20th of next year is when it will be over. Yeah. I mean, this has been such a peculiar election in, in many ways, but I suppose the biggest thing that makes it stand out is is that it's taking place against the backdrop of a pandemic. Uh, how do you think in the end that will shape it? Do you think it's going to prove decisive? Well, look, if history is any guide, of course it should. Uh, and I do believe that this will be remembered as the, the COVID-19 election in the United States. And we do have a history of elections in national crises, of course. And, you know, it's pretty clear that when there's one defining crisis from the point of view of the voters, from the point of view of what's happening in the country, that does not go that well for incumbent presidents if they're perceived at having mishandled it. Uh, certainly, the public opinion metric suggests that President Trump is perceived as having handled COVID very poorly, which, of course, explains why he's been so desperate to change the subject. Look at Herbert Hoover three years into the Depression, 1932, not quite three years, perceived as having done a, a terrible job at responding to it and actually being in a state of denial about it. Jimmy Carter and the recession of 1980 certainly had a lot to do with his defeat. Uh, so, you know, we'll see, but it's hard not to imagine that this will be remembered as the COVID election. And set against that, I suppose, is this culture war, uh, which Trump has clearly seen as central to his potential success. Do you think that that element could still help him, particularly in the Midwestern states, which everyone seems to think are crucial to how this turns out? Yeah, I mean, look, at the very end of the election, I do find it quite notable that President Trump it seems to have sort of given up on persuading anyone who's undecided or even some of the own voters in his coalition that he appears to have lost, like some of the college-educated Republican women who have really departed from him pretty strongly over the last four years in suburbs and places like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. So he's about mobilizing that base of his and the culture hot button issues seem to do very well with them. I should note that Donald Trump didn't create the culture war. These divisions and fissures in U.S. society certainly predate him in our politics. It's interesting that in the end, there's not that much left for him to fall back on. What about this thing that, again, you know, we were saying that no, nobody wants to be complacent or to predict the result given what happened in 2016. Another thing that Bidenites are worrying about, some of them, is this fear of shy Trump voters, that some Trump voters may not actually be admitting their affiliation to pollsters. Do you take that as seriously as a possibility? I don't think you can discard it in, entirely. Uh, there's also the potential new phenomenon this year of shy Biden voters. Uh, certainly, 
people who might be in very uh, Trumpy areas of the country, very Republican areas of the country who have soured on the president, but uh, might be reluctant to say so. Uh, and that, of course, is a consequence of the extreme polarization, right? That's true, I think, for Democrats and for Republicans. If you live in a community that is overwhelmingly on one side or the other, it becomes harder and harder to depart from uh, the political mores and norms of that community. And so I think we're probably going to see that to a certain extent on both sides. Again, the part that's really unprecedented here, and I do think makes it harder to know if the polls are accurate, has to do with turnout. It has to do with the question of how is the pandemic and the new realities of this very distorted life we're leading right now, how is that going to shape people's behavior, their willingness to go to the polls? For example, we are having a coronavirus spike in uh, many states and counties across the country, including many highly contested states and counties. For example, Wisconsin, when last I looked this morning, was number one in terms of uh, the increase in new per capita cases among states in the country. Wisconsin, of course, is is a key electoral state. Does that mean that more people stay home? Where are the cases concentrated? El Paso, Texas. Texas appears to be competitive at the presidential level for the first time really in decades. El Paso is a very democratic city. It has a huge spike. And in fact, uh, the mayor has just imposed a major lockdown there and banned all gatherings of more than six people. How is that going to affect the election? I have no idea. And of course, we're seeing already, we're talking about a week before the actual official voting day of Tuesday, that millions and millions of people are already voting. And you're getting these enormous lines of people queuing up to vote in person, but early. You're also getting the mail-in votes. How does that play out? Do we have any sense yet of this early voting phenomenon? Yeah, it, it's really interesting to see it. Uh, first of all, you know, because President Trump has sort of launched this unprecedented campaign by a president of the United States to call into question the legitimacy of our electoral system, combined with making changes in the Postal Service that have made people worry about whether their mail-in ballots will get delivered on time, you know, that's why people are really surging towards these early voting places and states that have it, which, by the way, not all states have it. Uh, and so the perception is that this early voting surge is largely Democratic, that there's a huge Democratic imbalance and that Republicans, because they're taking their cue from the president, are waiting more until Election Day. So that's one factor. But the other factor is just the sheer numbers, which are extraordinary. Uh, on Sunday, nine days out from the election, the Associated Press reported that already more than 50 million ballots had been cast, which exceeded the entire amount of early voting and absentee ballots in the entire 2016 election, nine days before. So you can see the scale of it. And you're getting these extraordinarily long queues on I mean, people queuing for up to four hours or longer. It does seem pretty dysfunctional. Are people complaining about that? And why has that been allowed to happen? You know, it is. It's just so embarrassing from a, a national perspective. Yeah, I can only imagine that people are looking outside the U.S. at these pictures of people online and thinking, you know, what a disgrace. This is the country that gave us democracy and it can't even, you know, manage to allow its citizens the most basic right of being able to vote. And of course, many of these long lines are in the South uh, and in places where there are more African-American voters. And, you know, you really have a situation where one party, the Republican Party, has had a fairly conscious effort at voter suppression. But the truth is the lines are not exclusively there. I'd say the strategy of doing everything possible to press down turnout is there. But many states are terrible at voting, truthfully. Look at New York City, which is a disgrace as well. 
Any idea why that's happening? Because it doesn't shouldn't be that hard to organize. Well, you would think, right? You know, uh, the country that sees itself as a leader in technology has been a laggard when it comes to voting. I guess the experts will tell you there's two things fueling that. Number one uh, is an extreme decentralization where it's not even just at the state level, but a welter of state and municipal and local and city ordinances uh, and uh, governance structures that oversee voting. Just the confusing tangle makes it hard to have widespread adaptation of best practices, number one. Number two, the different attitudes of the two political parties toward voting and turnout, which obviously can lead to different strategies. So you have the governor of Texas making war on plans to have drop-off boxes for the large number of new absentee ballots and mail-in ballots expected this year in Texas. So Harris County, home of Houston, fourth largest city in the United States, is allowed one drop-off box. And a Republican-dominated Texas Supreme Court just upheld that. Of course, then you have a state like Oregon, which has universal mail-in voting, has done that for years and has no problem with it. So it's just that wide disparity and decentralization is probably the biggest factor here. You said earlier that you weren't relaxed until actually January the 20th, if you ever get to relax at all, that is, um, alluding to this fear that everybody has that this will be a close election, that President Trump has repeatedly suggested it will be fraudulent and that he may dispute the election. How concerned should we be by this idea that this could drag on for weeks and, and even months? Very concerned. It doesn't mean it'll happen, but it really does depend on whether or not enough key states can have declared clear-cut winner outside of any margin of contesting, right? And so that would mean, can you declare a winner in that state on election night? Well, it would depend on whether they're able to count the absentee ballots in advance or whether they have a state where you have to wait, you know, until three days after the election for all the absentee ballots. It's Then you would have the question of, well, how many absentee ballots are still outstanding, right? You know, can you say that just based on the election day results that the number of outstanding absentee ballots would not change the outcome either way? And so really, you know, you have to have something we have not had in recent U.S. presidential elections, which would be close to a landslide result for a candidate in order to fully dispel those doubts. Okay, so you then move on to the next stage. Let's say it is close and it is disputed. How confident are you that America has the mechanisms in place to sort through that and get to the end of it and have a result that people will accept? I'm not confident at all, Gideon. I mean, that's what's so extraordinary about this. The best shot at legitimacy right now is a result outside of any margin of error uh, on election night or in the immediate couple days around it. Anything other than that, and I think we're really headed into dangerous and uncharted territory. You say uncharted territory, but of course you've just published a much acclaimed uh, joint biography of James Baker, who was Reagan's chief of staff, but also relevant to this in 2000, as I understand it, oversaw the George W. Bush effort in the disputed election with Al Gore. And that left a bad taste in the mouth of many. But in the end, people did accept the legitimacy of the result. Um, why isn't that a, a precedent that works now? You know, it's a great question, Gideon. And the truth is, Jim Baker, the story of 2000 election uh, is just in one state. So first of all, one of the fears, right, is that imagine that you had multiple simultaneous Floridas 
in Pennsylvania and in some other Arizona or some other state. So we're looking at the possibility of multiple simultaneous Floridas from 2000, first of all. Second of all, you have a situation where the legitimacy of your institutions has been, you know, assaulted repeatedly by the president himself, no less. So an overall rapid decline in trust in major institutions in our site, which includes the Supreme Court, in fact, as you and I are speaking, the U.S. Senate is set to confirm a ninth Supreme Court justice, Amy Coney Barrett, a very conservative justice. Trump has said publicly that he wants her in there so that she can rule and perhaps provide the decisive vote on any election-related disputes. Again, you have a situation where imagine that Republicans ram through a Supreme Court justice and she provides a decisive vote, allowing Donald Trump to have a second term. Do you believe that people will accept that as a legitimate outcome? Well, put that way, possibly not. But what about the behavior of the Republican Party? Um, Let's say that Trump's complaints appear, as they may well be, pretty fanciful, pretty manufactured, that he really is attempting to steal the election. Do you really think that the Republican Party, enough of them would just go along with that? Well, experience of the last four years has taught me the hard way (laughs) that uh, the safest bet is to believe that, yes, the Republicans will go along with Donald Trump because, in fact, that's exactly what they've done for four years. And so at each step along the way, we have said, well, they won't really accept this or they won't really accept that or really, you know, if he does this, it'll be a red line, he'll go too far. And at every step along the way, Republican elected officials in Washington, in the Senate, have proved not to be a bulwark against the president, but have supported him. You know, I guess what we're talking about is, in the worst case, essentially the collapse of American democracy. Um, And it strikes me that a lot of the people who've been earliest to warn about what's happening were like you had had a background of covering Russia. I don't know whether this is coincidental, but it's people like Gary Kasparov and Masha Gessen and Anne Applebaum and yourself. I mean, do you think that perhaps seeing how, you know, how dark things can get there colored your view or gave you an early alarm as to America? You know, Gideon, I do actually. And that's been one of the most extraordinary things, I think, for me and my husband, Peter, is that we covered Russia and the former Soviet Union in the first four years of Vladimir Putin's tenure and really saw the systemic and systematic dismantling of that very certainly fragile and and incipient and flawed democracy, but it had new institutions when we got there and they were essentially dismantled and a new system was built by the time we left. And that experience really was searing. I never expected it to also be relevant. And I just went back the other day and looked at a piece I wrote literally the first week of President Trump's tenure in the U.S. And this is a time when the sort of Russian election interference in 2016 was a big story, questions about what did Putin have over him. Four years later, of course, we don't really have answers to those questions. But my point even back then was, look, I don't know and I hope and assume that investigations will ultimately get to the bottom of that question. But more broadly, I'm worried about the resemblance in the playbook and the rhetoric that I hear from a wannabe authoritarian leader of the United States, which is not something that any of us have experienced. And so I do think that, you know, it was that Russia experience that had many of the people you mentioned, like Anne Applebaum. I was just uh, speaking with my friend Julia Yaffe the other day. You know, all of us, like, our red lights were blinking perhaps earlier than others because we recognized the playbook and the language 
of an aspiring authoritarian? Well, that would be a very bleak note on which to end. So let's try and think of something <laughs> optimistic. Uh, I mean, it's pretty clear where your loyalties lie. After that, I've I've written. You know, I'm I'm obviously want Biden to win, not Trump. But your your most recent uh, pieces for the New Yorker about Trump suggest a man who, at some level, actually does expect to lose. Correct. And by the way, he did expect to lose in 2016 because that's, you know, strongly what the evidence suggested to. He really, it was a very low probability outcome, uh, but low probability, as, as we all know by now, doesn't mean no probability. <laughs> and that's the bottom line, of course, going into this election. It's not impossible for him to win, but it remains quite unlikely. I would say in terms of the hopefulness, look, we we're just talking about Russia. The United States is, of course, a country with a very different history, culture, institutions and background than in Russia. And Donald Trump is a minority president. He has governed as such. He has campaigned as such. A majority of Americans have not for one single day supported Donald Trump and what he's doing to the country. So it's a quirk of our system that he got into office and he had the option to try to move toward the center, to try to bring in new voters. He never for one day took that option. And so Again, what I would say is a large percentage of Americans are against this and have mobilized and worked hard. Uh, and in fact, you could say that the m notable aspect of this election so far is its remarkable stability. Donald Trump started out quite behind to Joe Biden and has remained that way. Donald Trump has had, you know, around 40 to 45 percent of an approval rating for the entire duration of his presidency, including into this most eventful year of 2020 and including into this campaign. If he had 45 percent of the vote next Tuesday on Election Day, that would be the biggest defeat since 1996 of a presidential candidate. Okay, well, we'll leave it there on that note. And we will be holding our breath and watching intently over the next week and also reading you. So thank you very much indeed, Susan, for taking the time in this last week of the campaign to talk to me. Wonderful to talk with you, Gideon. That was Susan Glasser in Washington, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Next week, we'll have a result, possibly, and we'll be recording a special edition of the podcast the day after the vote. So make sure you download that episode and do tune in. You can find the show in all the usual podcast apps. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.